Hello, it is June 24th, 2020. I'm Randall Rothenberg, the CEO of the IAB, and you are here for IAB Real, where the leaders of the Interactive Advertising Bureau and the IAB Tech Lab get together to get real with the industry about the issues that are animating our day. I'm here with the president of the IAB, David Cohen, and the president of the IAB Tech Lab, Dennis Buckheim. Gentlemen, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So, you know, we're in the middle of uh, New Fronts Week. It's one of the biggest weeks of the year. We have more than 12,000 people registered to go to these uh, shows from about 30 different uh, companies in our industry. And it raises a really, really, really interesting question about marketplace dynamics, um, about you know, who are the key players, how, how have they changed over the years? Dennis, you were talking about this the other day. Uh, you know, what, what, what's so interesting to you? What are you really looking to understand as you look at this week in the context of everything else that's going on in our industry? Yeah, I think it, you know, it really, it struck me that, uh, that, you know, technology can play a big role in, in how markets evolve and, uh, and, you know, consumer behaviors change and regulatory changes uh, play a big role. There's, there's just a lot of different factors at play and sometimes they all come together at the same time. Uh, and, and I think in the, in the context of video and TV, uh, maybe we've seen that, you know, just in spades, right, at this point with so many factors coming together across, you know, more traditional TV and digital all at the same time. And, and so, you know, I thought it would be sort of interesting to kick off, uh, you know, as we were talking the other day also about uh, the history of how TV evolved and the you know, remarkable stability for a very long time uh, that, that the market, you know, the market saw and what, what caused that stability and then what caused it to change so quickly and be disrupted? And then maybe we can, we can take it from there and talk more about the, the digital side of the world. Well, I, I can start by offering a little bit of uh, uh, pedantry in the, form of, uh, in the form of history because- I would expect nothing less, Randall. Thank Go you. Yes. Historical pedantry. The fact of the matter is that there was a reason that for most of the 20th century, we only had three national television networks, a technical reason. Uh, and I should add that uh, this year, 2020, is actually the 100th anniversary of commercial broadcasting in the United States. This November will be the 100th anniversary of radio station KDKA in Pittsburgh, still around, uh, which was the first commercial uh, broadcast license issued in the United States. So, so why could there only be three national networks, first in radio and then uh, later in television? Well, the answer is that uh, when radio was invented and came under the, uh, the aegis of, um, I think it was the Federal Radio Commission was the, uh, was the, the origins of the FCC, um, they had to limit the power of the stations so they wouldn't just start um, uh, stepping over each other and just kind of drown, literally drowning each other out. So uh, station power was limited to 50 kilowatts. A 50 kilowatt station only had so much reach. When you kind of mapped out the reach 
of 50 kilowatt stations, you ended up with a map of the United States that was constructed of things called uh, DMAs, right? D dominant market areas, David, was that? Designated right? market areas. Designated market areas. And um, there are about- 210. 210 DMAs in the United States. It was also uh, research indicated at the time that if you were a nationally distributed brand, you know, let's say your uh, Dove, Dove soap or ivory soap, one of the earliest brands, um, and your business came from marketing nationally, taking this mass manufactured product and marketing it en masse to the mass market, uh, in order to do that effectively through media, uh, you had to have 80% coverage of the United States. In other words, you wanted to advertise nationally, that meant you had to cover at least 80% of the United States. When you did the math on the DMAs, it meant that you could, if you needed to cobble together 80% of the United States through stations in DMAs, you could only have three networks capable of reaching that 80% without them stepping all over each other. And it, in the early days of television, the same thing helped. You, you just simply could not get enough coverage in broadcast television um, for 80% of the United States if you had more than uh, three networks. And here's my last little known bit of pedantry. There was a fourth network in uh, the 1950s that was still around in the early 1960s, because I actually remember it as a, as a mere child. It was the Dumont Network, and it went out of business because it, it just could not get enough affiliates to cover 80% uh, of the United States. So that's why we've had this stability. That's why we had, for most of the century, only three uh, broadcast networks. Uh, uh, NBC was the first, CBS was the second, and then uh, ABC got spun out of, uh, of NBC, um, I think in the 19. 40s. So, so there you are. Stability was the rule. And, and that's why it has been so torturous for um, the, uh, the media industry in particular, and the marketers who depended on media, to adapt to a world of constant, continual, ongoing innovation. That makes sense? Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think there are actually kind of amazing parallels to the, the early days of, of the web when you think about it, right, that uh, the, the stability, uh, in some sense, even amidst massive innovation, uh, and the, you know, the, uh, the aggregation of audience, what was incredibly important early on, uh, you know, I would say largely, because if, if you couldn't aggregate audience, you couldn't actually carry out the direct sale of, of that audience to an advertiser, you know, maybe through an agency. Um, and maybe we'll get to you know, more of what disrupted that <laughs> in a few minutes. But, um, you know, if we think about the history of digital media, and, and those early days, you know, what do both of you think, uh, which, which companies do both of you think were most important, maybe you know, 15 years ago, which would be about you know, 10 years in, into the consumer internet, and you know, why why did they have that uh, that market position? Well, I could I could take a stab at that. I mean, you know, I uh, was fortunate to get into digital kind of in the mid 90s, right when it was kind of starting, and there were uh, I'd say that there were two basic buckets of activity. There was how do you find stuff? So I, you know, Google, AltaVista, Lycos. I think about kind of the what was the roadmap for this kind of new thing that we have called the internet to try to find what it is that we're looking for. 
uh, and you had kind of big content brands, um, you know, whether that was um, AOL back in the day, whether that was Yahoo back in the day. I mean, th there was a kind of proliferation of both kind of help me find it. And then once I find it, what is a, a good use and a valuable use of my time? And, and, you know, with, you know, I'm sure we'll start drawing some analogies to the new fronts, but the thing that strikes me in the early days of the internet is the barrier to entry. So very kind of as the antithesis of what Randall just said, you can only have three television networks before you started stepping on each other. In the early days of the web, there was no barrier to entry. Anyone really could be a publisher in a, in a heartbeat. And there was just, um, you know, kind of everyone did. And there was just this tremendous explosion of innovation and entrepreneurialism. Uh, and there was lots of kind of folks that, that took off uh, in the early days. And some of them uh, are still around to this day. I, 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 there were some companies also uh, in the early days, because you were talking about you know, who was dominant, some companies that, that straddled those boundaries or tried to straddle those boundaries. So Yahoo, remember, began as, yeah. a, as a search device, yeah. not as a content company, but as a, as a, yeah, as a directory. A directory, and then added content on top of it. Um, you know, uh, uh, Microsoft launches its browser and then says, you know what, we need content to get people to use this browser. Um, and so that's where you get the uh, the MSN partnership, yeah. which uh, you know began, as I recall, began as a partnership with. Uh, sorry, it began as MSN. Michael Kinsley went out there to help uh, launch it, and then they did the partnership with with NBC. So they were very early onto the idea of uh, trying to bring video onto the web. To me, what's most interesting you, you, to go back to, it, and I was looking at a bunch of my old Ad Age columns uh, today. Um, you have, on the one hand, in any industry or any function, uh, you know, a natural tendency to want to revert to the mean, and the mean is stability. You want to create as much stability as you can in running a business. And stability um, for marketers uh, and advertisers has always meant scale. I want as, as many eyeballs as possible it, with as little work as possible to get those eyeballs. Um, and so in the early days of the internet, this, this dominance, you know, if we think back, you know, because we were all part of it, you know, you, you had the portal wars, and then you had the browser wars, and then you had, I think, the ad network wars, and all kinds of wars. But these were wars in the early days that were all about trying to aggregate eyeballs. And I think in that, I'm going to throw this in here, I think in that, uh, a lot of companies uh, missed the ball. The importance was not aggregating eyeballs. The importance was aggregating data. That was what, that is what divides the old media era from the new media era. The old media era, you were looking for eyeballs. In the new media era, you're looking for data. And those are two fundamentally different things. At least I think so. You know, can I, can I actually yeah. just push on that for a second? Because, you know, I, I don't, I want to agree with you. Uh, and I really do. But I, I think that if you think about the things that we've been hearing as of late, we are still in a world that is based on the same things that we've been planning media on for decades. Reach against people and frequency against those people. Reach and frequency, which is basically against big, broad swaths of audience, 18 to 34-year-olds, 18 to 49-year-olds, to this day, 
we still hear people, hear people referencing that. We have at the same time been talking about a migration to custom audiences, the value of first party data, but we are grasping onto the vestiges of reach and frequency based planning uh, you know, with our hands kind of uh, turning uh, white and eventually we'll be able to slough that off. But we still very much are in kind of this, the same kind of mental model that we were in kind of decades ago. But, it, but I think, that, yeah. Is that a failed mental model though? Oh yeah. Well, and, and, yeah, and, and reach and frequency against what, right? I mean, I think that's that, and which, which to me comes back to Randall's point about data. Yeah. And that if you, you know, if you don't have, if you don't know who the, who the eyeballs belong to, right? <laughs> uh, and you can't convey that to, to someone you're trying to sell, you know, those, those, that audience to, um, you know, you're in a much weaker spot uh, intrinsically, right? Yep. That, and, yep. and, and I think that, you know, the companies maybe now, you know, kind of switching gears a little bit more to, to the world today and how we got here, the companies that are arguably, you know, the most dominant today uh, were able to take some combination of audience and data about that audience and something that is a platform component, right? Whether it, and, and actually a, a consumer facing platform component, uh, right? That I would argue. And, and that's that, it's that trio in a way that, that creates you know, incredible, uh, you know, uh, enduring market position. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, what I, as I keep reflecting on my uh, kind of my, uh, pedantic history, I'm struck that going back as far as the 1950s, uh, well, first of all, the- uh, Wait, you, 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 you weren't pedantic enough before, now you're, you're jumping well, back again. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just saying, it, it's, you know, the, the godfather of the reach and frequency uh, uh, approach to advertising was a man named Russell Reeves, who was, um, the, uh, the, the godfather of Ted Bates advertising, which then was one of the first major Saatchi acquisitions. And, uh, you know, Reeves was the, uh, the guy behind the concept of the unique selling proposition. The USP, uh, the concept was you take a single point in your, in your message and you repeat it over and over and over again until the audience is absolutely saturated and they all understand that one point. And what was genius about it it was an argument that was all about reach and frequency, and it was an argument that was astonishingly valuable to the ad agencies and to the media companies, because it basically said, you take a point, Wonder Bread helps build strong bodies in 12 ways. You repeat it over and over and over again, saturate the audience, the media make money, the advertising agency makes money, and it, you know, presumably the product uh, sells as well. But ever since then, there have been others who've come in and tried to come up with replacements for reach and frequency. So when Bill Burnback became the godfather of creativity, you know, the kind of the, the godfather of the creative revolution in advertising, his point was that great creativity obviates the need for reach and frequency. Because if your message is put so perfectly well, creatively it, to touch the soul, of the uh, of the consumer, you don't need to repeat it over and over and over again. So fast forward to today, and the argument for those who are trying to overcome the still standing reach and frequency model is data. Our data will help you get to the right people in a more effective way, so you don't have to spend as much money on reach and frequency. 
But we're still yes. not there yet, as you're saying, David. We're, yes, we're... I mean, you know, yes, I think that, you know, as with anything else, there is change that is nice and slow and steady until there's a kind of uh, a factor that kind of exacerbates or accelerates that change. And I think we're, we're witnessing that uh, today. So I think that, you know, as recently as a year or two ago, uh, I was lamenting all of the discussion around kind of the migration to data. The television upfront was still, by and large, 90% of it was conducted on broad demographics. I, we are now witnessing, as kind of we're, we're bearing witness to a, an accelerated change over the past, let's say, year, certainly over the past half a year, that is actually changing that, which is interesting. The other, th other thing I'd say, Randall, that you kind of missed in the kind of evolution is the recency theory. Mm -hmm. so, that, so after kind of reach and frequency was kind of established, there was this big, I remember in my early days of, of my career, that you know the, the value of an ad impression, uh, as it gets closer to the moment of, it, it, it devalues over time. So which is why it's important if you're in fast food to reach someone right before lunchtime, or it's important to reach someone right before they're about to make a decision. And there was lots of discussions around, could we sacrifice beating someone over the head a million times just at the right time with the right message is actually the, the most beneficial. Uh, I want to ask you, uh, uh, as a, uh, uh, you know, one of the, uh, the earliest participants in the new fronts on the, uh, the buy yeah. side, as one of the earliest digital agency uh, people, um, and now sitting, sitting through the new fronts, we're on day three of the new fronts right now. Um, what, what are you seeing there? Because I, I'm intrigued. We're seeing a lot of messaging about unduplicated reach. So that seems to me that it's still this 1950s thing coursing through the system. But I also think we're seeing a lot of other things that have nothing to do with that. So how do you parse what we're seeing in the new front so far this week? Yeah, I, I think that you're absolutely right. I, what, we're, what we're seeing is um, the challenges of uh, media planning, which is how do you put uh, new things into the mental model, the mental construct of what you've been doing for a long, long time. So, you know, we have the, the foundational element in video for, for decades has been linear television. Linear television operates in a very, very kind of relatively predictable way year on year. And uh, a media planner is all about understanding trade-offs. If I move 100 rating points out of linear television and I move it to Roku or Amazon or Tubi, uh, what are, what's going to happen to my uh, client's results? Uh, and I think that we're trying to think about that in a reach and frequency way. The cost per incremental reach point is the conversation that we keep on hearing about because it really, it hits at dead on the challenges that we have with linear television. Linear television is a medium that is built on uh, quartiles of viewership. The top two quartiles are very heavy users, people that are devoted to television. And then there's a whole host of people who are light television users. And if you don't supplement uh, a linear television buy with things that are the new kind of paradigm in that space, you're going to be missing out on a huge swath of audience. So what we're seeing now on display at the new fronts is uh, the streaming revolution uh, happening right before our eyes. What is the opportunity? How does that fit in with the way that we've been planning video for uh, 30 to 50 years. And, and that's kind of, that's one piece. The other piece that I think that we're seeing, which is what the New Fronts was built on, is custom content opportunities, right? What is the breakthrough opportunity? Yesterday, we saw Barstool Sports. 
my good friend Erica Nardini from back in the day. I mean, it was absolutely one of the most captivating presentations I have seen in a long time, just because it cut through all of the kind of spots and dots, just buying simple impressions and actually getting the you know, implied endorsement from people who consumers uh, trust and believe in various areas. It, was, uh, it brought me back to why the new fronts were so special back in the early days. So I really enjoyed that. So the, the, hey, yeah, it strikes me a little bit. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it, it strikes me a little bit. It's that uh, there's a, a little theme of what's what's old is new again, um, and you know, reach and frequency, old, new again, right? <laughs> um, and uh, and the the dominance of a small number of players, the broadcast networks, right, um, is new again in a way. You know, I'd argue that there are a small, a relatively small number of companies that have have you know really strong market position. Uh, today and that uh, that reach and frequency and and some of the other aspects of how the market operates now, in many ways, is all about you know bridging from you know, pardon, old world to new, right? <laughs> uh, and and uh, and I, you know I think that's that's something maybe worth you know discussing in terms of who those new players are that matter the most. And and David, you just uh, listed a number of the the key streaming players. You know, do you see some of them as being you know, the most important companies, not just in the new fronts context, but you know, overall in, in you know, media and advertising today? Are there others? You know, I think there are <laughs> that we would call out. Uh, you know, what, what, what are the, who are the biggest players today? Why are they in the positions you know, they are? What do you think, Dennis? Why not, why not, you could ask the question and answer it at the same time. That we're creating the rules as we go along. Who do you think? Sure. Who would you add? <laughs> um, I, and I would say there are there's a, an interesting mix of the you know the streaming media players um, who are and themselves an interesting mix of you know ranging from a Disney uh, to you know well Disney in particular, but to AT and T and and everything that they've amassed not only around media but around the uh, the technology side, right, and, and uh, on mobile and TV, um, you know, I think they jump out, and uh, and then on the you know more sort of pure digital side, uh, you know, I think it's sort of hard to hard not to say Google, Facebook, and Amazon um, are the you know the three most important, even on a global scale. Uh, with Amazon kind of being you know a more further proof of what we were talking about earlier, where it's that combination of building uh, you know an engaged audience plus a platform, you know, which they did brilliantly with AWS and then built an ad platform <laughs> um, and, uh, and having the data or the commerce data around that to be able to, you know, to carefully curate uh, and you know, build a business off of. So I, I think those would be at least five companies that, that I would put on the list. But, there, but there's a big difference, I think, and, and this doesn't get talked about enough. And that is in the old days when you had, let's say the, the three dominant uh, television networks, and you know, gradually you, you saw that same kind of consolidation in the magazine industry as well, because you know, uh, uh, magazines sold primarily at supermarket newsstands. There was only so much space on those newsstands. The ability to dominate those newsstands translated into your ability to dominate uh, 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 dominate magazine distribution. So you had a concentration around. The Time Inks and the uh, Condé Nast and the Hearst and the Meredith. So the, the, there was always this tendency to consolidation, and that's, that tendency to consolidate um, meant the concomitant consolidation of both distribution and content. So there wasn't a lot of pixie dust to spread around. You know, there, there were only so many 
uh, 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 production studios that got advantages from the NBCs and ABCs and CBSs. I look at the new fronts this week, as I have over the years, and what I'm seeing is there's a lot of pixie dust to be spread around, a lot of it. Um, and and uh, you mentioned Barstool Sports. I agree with you. Barstool, uh, David, just had a, a thoroughly differentiated offering, absolutely yeah. you know, out of the box. Uh, you, you know exactly who it's appealing to. Um, and it, it could not have existed. I mean, literally could not have existed 20 years ago. There was no way for it to get distribution. Uh, too expensive. Um, and so that's why I think it makes it a little bit hard to, to even, it's not to have the conversation because uh, they're clearly dominant companies today, a handful, as there were a handful of dominant companies 20, 30, 40 years ago, but the way they dominate is different and the way they spread or don't spread their pixie dust is also different. I think that's, that's absolutely right. And, the, um, and maybe that is an area where you know, technology has been a complete game changer because maybe something that's significantly different about you know, the, the way the world used to operate or the marketplace used to operate and the way it does now is that even, even the dominant players are interconnected and they're connected to everybody and the you know and they, they connect to everybody on the buy side and sell side practically and the you know the advent of, of programmatic or automation in advertising is no small factor right <laughs> in all of that and enabling connections that were just not you know not possible decades ago certainly um but not not even close to the scale they are now even five years ago yeah yeah, the, the, the oxymoron that comes to mind is kind of it's consolidation and diversification at the same time. So I think that yeah. while there is kind of uh, more and more uh, kind of conglomerates, they are diversifying their offering as consumer habits are changing. And we're seeing that kind of uh, play itself out in lots of different ways. Amazon getting NFL rights, Fox buying kind of streaming uh, services. So it's kind of everyone is kind of amassing uh, lots and lots of uh, tools in their toolbox uh, to actually accommodate for kind of changing, shifting consumer habits. Which actually makes it even more complicated back to reach and frequency right? <laughs> to, to execute the basics, right, in marketing that you have to do it across so many different platforms and, and yeah. understand, you know, understand so much. Right? I want to re-raise something that you brought up uh, at the very beginning, Dennis, when you began kind of positing this uh, uh, this area of thought, and that is, um, what does history tell us about how incumbents get disrupted in uh, media and advertising marketplaces? And um, and are there analogies from what's happened in the past to uh, today? And uh, one of the other things that's going on in our world, um, it's front page news now, there is this brewing boycott uh, of uh, some large advertisers of Facebook. Facebook has been Kind of in the crosshairs on uh, on a bunch of issues, and I was just watching the Wall Street Journal um, uh, New Front, yeah. and their theme was trust, yeah. trust, trust, trust. Is trust, in your estimation or guesstimation, you think trust is one of those things get, that can be disruptive? That that yes. it can yeah. be. Please continue. Yeah, no, I think, um, I mean, this is where it gets wonky pretty quickly, but the, uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, a lot of what we talk about in, in the tech lab context and, and has increasingly, I think, come up in the, 
uh, you know, broad, more broadly in the industry, um, you know, certainly we talk privacy all the time, uh, but underpinning privacy is transparency, transparency to consumers, transparency from buyer to seller and everybody in between. And, uh, and what that transparency enables as a tool is, is for all of those different participants from consumer all the way back, right, all the way on, um, to, to decide who they, to see who's, you know, who's in the chain, if you will, and decide who they trust and who they don't trust and to, to lock out those that they don't trust. And so something like uh, consumer privacy controls can be surprisingly disruptive by themselves because consumers can decide, oh, I don't know you, I don't trust you, so you don't get data anymore, which comes back to your point about the importance of data. How does that, you know, that company then survive or thrive without that access to data? It also, you know, it's something like supply, uh, supply path optimization or demand path optimization with buyers and sellers choosing their partners throughout the chain more explicitly in itself, I think, can create more consolidation around the companies that are more hand-selected. So it's, it's, there's an irony in all of that, that as more transparency is, is implemented uh, in you know, a, a more open marketplace and a programmatic marketplace, if you will, that, uh, that I think it, it actually, you know, you see expansion, you see contraction. <laughs> transparency actually is probably going to cause some contraction. Um, and, and the root of it, to your point, is trust. So we're being told by our bosses in the control booth that it's time to wrap up. But before we do that, David, I want to ask you uh, one last question. As we said, it's we're like midpoint in the new fronts. Uh, you've also you've mentioned uh, how uh, Barstool Sports uh, leapt out at you. Uh, any other uh, high points so far in the new fronts that have really piqued your uh, your interest, touched your soul, your heart, your mind? The next disruptors. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, at the risk of stating the obvious, we're operating uh, the new fronts in a very, very uh, interesting time in our world and in our marketplace. And kind of the the ways that uh, presenters are uh, addressing that, are taking it uh, head on, are uh, doing more than just talking, but talking about actually what they're going to be doing. I was. Uh, I was impressed with Condé Nast yesterday. I was impressed with Snapchat. I thought that those were two, um, it was, I was proud to be part of the same kind of uh, industry uh, that was kind of putting on such a important, meaningful um, kind of uh, message. Uh, well, they, both, the they both addressed uh, racial inequality. Oh, uh, in, in, different ways, but yeah. in different ways, but really head on. And I thought that those were fantastic. Today, uh, after this, we're going to go check out... Um, kind of the, the news day is super fascinating. What is Vice Media, who kind of was born on this idea of kind of brutally honest transparency and truth in kind of some of the, the hardest places to operate kind of news organizations in the world. I'd be very interested to see what they have to, uh, they have to say. Those are the two that leapt out, but it's been a great week so far. I think that we're showing uh, the market and the, and the kind of industry what a virtual event could be like. So it, it's been great knock on uh, on fake wood. So Dennis, any any high points that that uh, you've seen, or you've been you know buried down in the uh, in the control room? <laughs> in the I've been pretty buried Tech down Lab. in the yeah the bowels of Tech Lab, honestly. But but following yeah you know, following the highlights and lowlights, and yeah no it's it's been uh, it's been I, mean, I think it's an amazing evolution of new fronts in in real time here, right? And and the scale of it, and the number of new players in the mix. 
the likes of TikTok, right? I think you know the the, the influence there is is tremendous. Uh, so yeah, no, I think it's it's uh, it's a great it's a great week, and it's only half, not even half over. <laughs> yeah, I will I will make a prediction. I'll close with a prediction, uh, and that is uh, we will not go back to the historic um, uh, television network upfront model uh, that has dominated for so long. You know, it's been holding its own, the cable upfronts, the broadcast upfronts, for a number of years, even as there's been kind of crowding at the margins. But I think the, just both the efficiency and the effectiveness of uh, doing this at home, big screen, showcasing just the vibrancy of actual production right in front of people in an environment where you actually are able to absorb it a hell of a lot better than you can absorb it in a, uh, a 3,000 foot, a 3,000 person theater. It's very striking to me. Um, and the fact that you can also have thousands and thousands and thousands of people attend without the cost of travel or yeah. lodging or any of those things is, uh, is extraordinarily striking. So I think that we are uh, right here in the midst of an epochal change in the way uh, media buying and selling is being done. So that's my prediction. And that's a good note to close on because not outlandish. No, and it it ties back to disruption, right? There you have it. (laughs) There we are. So speaking for my fellow disruptors, David Cohen, the president of the IAB, and Dennis Buckheim, the president of the IAB Tech Lab. I'm Randall Rothenberg, the CEO of the IAB. Uh, Thanking you for listening to this edition of IAB Real. I hope you thought it was real, and I hope you'll get real with us next week when we reconvene to discuss the digital industry issues of the day. Bye all.